everyone, it's Judy Warner. Welcome to the first of a special podcast series developed in partnership with the Ecosystem Podcast in Keysight University. In this first episode, I'm joined by Dr. Eric Bogatin, signal integrity guru and professor at CU Boulder. I'm also joined by his friend and protege, Dr. Tim Wangley, who's a signal integrity application scientist at Keysight. Due to their history as professor and student, it makes for a really interesting conversation that I think you'll enjoy. Together, we're going to examine existing issues in the current SI design workflow and ways to better ensure an accurate correlation between simulation and measurement. We also discuss the important ways that EDA tools need to evolve to create that more efficient workflow and to help ensure accurate results. Before we hop into our conversation, make sure you go over and subscribe to Keysight University and also to the Ecosystem Podcast community where you'll get more technical resources and keep track of this series. Thanks again for joining. Now let's jump into our conversation with Dr. Eric Bogatin and Dr. Tim Wangley. Hi, Eric. Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for joining in this fun conversation. Let's jump right in. And I want to ask you both as way of introduction icebreaker, what is your favorite, each of you, one, two, maybe, of your favorite memorable experiences as professor and PhD student around signal integrity at CU Boulder? Okay, so I'm going to go first so I get to embarrass Tim initially. Okay. I, I'm not going to mention the comedy skit that Tim did at one of the restaurants nearby one evening. I I still hear about it from my wife, Susan. We both went really? to hear the... I'm not going to mention it. I know you've been practicing, and, and you are much better than you were. Oh, so I'm, I'm basically gonna, a pro and, at this point. Uh, I'm I'm sure you are, and I can't wait to go to your, your next performance sometime. But, but that's not the story that I wanted to mention. In, instead... I, I'm going to embarrass him another way. Um, so, uh, so he took. Uh, I was teaching the high-speed digital design class, and, uh, and and I think the first time I met you was when you took the class. And I don't remember if you were the TA for the class or you took it. You know which one came first? Because, uh, but you were in the class, and I was doing a demo of uh, ADS, and we were using that for uh, a lot of the simulation examples, and. I remember after the class, Tim was so excited with ADS. He said, oh my gosh, I love that tool. I I can't imagine doing anything else in my life than than using that tool and doing simulations with ADS because it is so cool. And that was, I don't know, three, four years before he got involved with Keysight, but I uh, you know, I made note of that, and he got a lot of chance to to play with ADS. But it, I, this is one of those occasions. Love at first sight, and it was based on that that I tried to get him connected to um, hmm. uh, to uh, uh, Keysight and ADS. And uh, and look at him now. He's Mr. Look ADS. At him now, Mr. Yeah. ADS. Love yeah, it. So love it. Love at first sight. There wow. we go. All right, Tim. And just before you say anything, Tim, just know that I have the ability to retroactively change your grade. <laughs> just, yes, just let it. Yes. Let, let me be clear about that. So now you go. All right, I'm gonna share two <laughs> memories then. One, one sort of warm. The other one scary. The first one, I th- I can st- I can still remember like it's yesterday afternoon that I was in the office with you. It was an interview for your research assistantship position. And we got talking to 
about simulation and measurement, the dance between simulation and measurement. I brought up this uh, branch line coupler project that was I, I, I had worked on in undergrad and you know, I think that was the beginning of everything because that full circle to my PhD thesis is about simulation and measurement. So that was my first warm memory. And the scary one is every single time Eric would say, so what? <laughs> that always <laughs> brings me brings me down two notches. Doesn't mean doesn't matter how how far I've gone in my research. <laughs> the so what always brings me down to the ground and say, you know what? That's a good question. Eric always has a way to to focus on the practicality and just just to make sure that you know it has to be real. It has to be uh, practical for people to to use and to see, not just simulation. Results doesn't do much. It's the so what. That's my two my, my job here is done. <laughs> I, I am that little voice in his ear every time he's doing something, whispering, okay, you've just explained this. So what? So what? What's the value so of it? Does it mean? Okay, so my what? job here is done. Uh, okay. is, is this called mic drop moment? I can just leave now? <laughs> and Tim can Eric continue. Eric leaves the room. Yeah, yes. Well, that's fun. It's... Uh, it's a real privilege to be with both of you SI engineers and the teacher and the student, and you've both done amazing work in the field. So for our audience, let's talk about signal integrity and the design workflow as it stands today. Um, it's complex. The speeds are amazingly fast. Um, we've talked about a tool ADS, and there are other tools in the market. Let's talk about what the design flow looks like today and maybe where well let's just start there let's just talk about how the design workflow is today and how that flow is and then we'll jump into asking you about where there's disconnects or bottlenecks in that process okay tim you want to go first and then i'll give my opinion okay you, you're I'll... you're more connected with the design community and designers mm -hmm. out there well, I have to invoke what Eric always has to say about hope cannot be part of the design process. <laughs> and that's why there are different parts of it that needs to be addressed. That, that's why I think Eric mentioned the virtual prototyping is very important where you're creating what's in the real world in a digital sandbox situation. And there is also the compliance part that kind of merges the simulation and the measurement because you want to make sure that once you've done designing, the design itself is measured and is compliant to the standard that's been uh, drafted. And finally, back to the PhD thesis, it's the material property. There's so many mm -hmm. things that can be different between measurement and simulation. You want to make sure that when you are simulating, when you're designing, you're getting the, the good starting point in, in your simulation. You know, that is a really good point. And I have to say that's probably one of the most undervalued uh, uh, principles in simulation that it's so easy to, you know, type in the numbers of, oh, I'm going to use this geometry and crowd, and I'm right. going to use this dielectric constant. But when it comes to what you're just saying about simulation and measurement correlation, the number one biggest issue is do you have the right material properties? Mm -hmm. And there's that disconnect you were talking about, Judy, between what you learn or what you get from the fab house uh, and what you actually, or what the fab house tells you and what you actually get back from them. 
both in the geometry cross-section information and the material properties that if you just blindly use those terms and plug them in um, that's where you'll see differences between the measurement and simulation mm -hmm. and uh, it, it is if you want to get that good measurement simulation correlation it's absolutely worth it to have some test structures on your board that you can use to independently back out uh, the material properties and the geometrical cross-section that's that's what Tim did in his PhD mm -hmm. thesis how mm -hmm. can you do electrical test structures um, in order to back out what the um, the dielectric thicknesses line widths uh, conductor thickness roughness dielectric constant are it, it is so important to get good measurement simulation correlation and and to that point it's real world like the dielectric after it gets pressed out is really this thick yeah and, you got to do it in the, situ you have to so do you it know in situ what the board is yeah if you just take all the ideals and you throw them in there this used to happen to me a lot and i won't go down that rabbit hole but mm. the question yeah. always was why is what i simulated different mm. than the board you sent me and I'm like, well, how long do you have? <laughs> you know? um, yeah. So, and and I don't think engineers understood that the material property side. So I think that's a really good answer. Yeah. Eric, do you have anything else you want to add to that before yeah, we jump uh, into the pain points? Yeah, I'll, I'll say one other comment. So, um, so Tim pointed out how valuable it is to have that kind of virtual prototype. It's easier, quicker to do quick turns in the design in the virtual prototype than in the uh, physical prototype in in the, uh, the 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 build it and test it uh, cycles, and um, and so doing the virtual simulation to help confirm design rules, help confirm the final post layout analysis is really important. I find there are always groups out there that I talk to that don't do simulation. They're at mm -hmm. 10 gigabit, maybe even 15 gigabit, and they say, well, I'm I'm going to use reference design, and I'm going to use you know, all the rules of thumb that I've seen and all the free stuff that's out there uh, to design my product. And I, I am amazed at some groups can actually get successful 10 gigabit systems without doing any simulation. It's, it's that one time that, mm. uh-oh, they push the envelope a little bit. Or the way you add value to a reference platform is by customizing it in some way. And if you're just building a reference platform that somebody else has done, it's a commodity, and you're not going to have as good right. profit margin. Mm -hmm. It's it's the customizing, doing something special, adding your own FPGA or your own uh, uh, ASIC in there or some other uh, feature in there. And it only takes one time of screwing it up and not anticipating the problems that might have mm -hmm. been uncovered in a simulation to um, have a... Uh, four to six week uh, delay time uh, and then getting a board back that doesn't work and it's really hard to debug mm. um, and so getting it right the first time mm. if it I, I find that companies that don't do simulation because it's too expensive or it's too hard to do um, they're keeping their uh, just like Tim said earlier they're keeping their fingers crossed and hoping the design will work and they're using right. hope as part of the the design process. Um, 
And it only takes that one time for losing, you know, four to six weeks or ten or twenty thousand dollars of a board spin to have the design tool and the methodology pay for itself. And so you only get have to get burned once in order to mm. convince your management this is the right investment yeah. to make. Yeah. It's and just a one, very good point, by the way. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Tim. And just when Eric was talking, I was I had this phrase, expect the unexpected in my head. Just it's, it's with simulation that you can do that. It, when something is going to break, it, better it break in simulation than in real life where, like Eric said, you had to spend four to six weeks. And like Judy, you mentioned, you have to really track now. Is it the manufacturer? Is it the vendor? Is it the thickness that's different? Is it different? the design? Is it the yeah. design? So there, once, once it gets out there, it's broken. Everybody's going to start pointing fingers at each other. You can't really track down what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those board you know, effects and not it, having that yeah. data. It's a mm. it's they they're making decisions by data then mm. hopefully. Mm. Um and to your point Eric that I wanted to say is your point about people saying it's too expensive, which I've heard that over and over again is like have you done the math of how expensive mm. it is to say spin a board three times? And they're like, well, it's just a prototype. I'm like, yeah, but if you do the math, mm. and then if you're actually trying to get something to market or meet a deadline, that I mean, really, it could go into the millions really quickly depending on, on the project. So I agree. And it's the time. Mm. Uh, if everything is time to market and you lose six to you know eight weeks of the market window, and that's where a lot of profitability is in the early, mm. early introduction. Yeah, for sure. So pain points, we've talked about, a uh, that's a big one. <laughs> um, what existing pain points, because we're going to, we've already started this discussion around design workflow, mm -hmm. right? And, and not going back to the beginning, you know, if right. it was a, a linear um, process. So besides that, where are the pitfalls um, as it relates to design workflow EDA tools and engineering knowledge and situa situational awareness? Yeah, I think it's probably two things. One is uh, it is the complexity of a lot of the tools, and it is um, the expert, you know, it's that mismatch between the complexity of the tools and the expertise of the engineer, the user. And I always say that. It's really easy. These a lot of the tools, and you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of ADS, um, and uh, uh, but there are a lot of these tools that um, it's really easy to push the run button and get an answer. It's really hard to know is that a good answer? Does that have artifacts? Mm -hmm. And have I, you know, have I screwed something up or have I set it up correctly? Mm -hmm. And um, and I mean this in the most loving way, and, I, and I'm not pointing fingers at you, Tim, but an awful lot, there are a lot of EDA vendors out there, a lot of application engineers, right. and they are really skilled at knowing what buttons to push in their tool, not mm -hmm. so skilled at how do I apply that to my customers' problems, or for that matter, like Tim alluded to earlier, ask that so what, so what? question. Mm -hmm. It's the, okay, I've got an answer. It's, okay, customer, it's your answer. Here's your answer. Mm -hmm. They don't understand how to interpret the so what. And it's left to the customer, which, you know, yeah, it's their responsibility. But that requires quite a bit of experience and learning curve. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think that, that it's that mismatch of the skill set of engineers and the skill set required to use the tools and to excel 
using the tools. Mm-hmm. And that that's what – hey, here's my plug for – for our program at CU, we're, we just imp- introduced a professional master's program in high-speed digital engineering to help provide engineers that extra jump up and accelerating up the learning curve to be able to answer the so what kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Tim, what do you think? Well, I have to add to what Eric was saying. As far as SI engineers go, a good engineer press buttons, right? But a great SI engineer knows what to expect, and then how to interpret the results. I think that's a very, two, two very different groups of engineers. And to answer Judy's question, the, the pain points, from, from my side, on, on key side, we see in the future, there might be some future uh, group collaboration. Like Also, Judy, we, we had on another podcast talking about Altium 365, where not only is the engineers involved, is a marketing person, and also the vendor is going to be all in the same room. How do we work together? I think that's one, one big thing with each other. Then, and we, I think overall, we're talking about design iteration. How do we really show in that design cycle, get really quickly to time to market? And finally, the verification part with the, the, the right SI engineers and Eric's uh, CU's program, I can vouch for. It's, it's, it's a lot better now. Now I've left. <laughs> hey, it was pretty good before, too. It was it? pretty good, but now it's even better. Still, that's a passive-aggressive crowd. I, I don't I like Eric. I mean, Tim, I think you just burned yourself. Like I just burned myself a little. It's like I came from the – no. You can take that out and post. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> It'll be on the cutting room floor. Huh? Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, it's it's very the, the three steps. You know, working with each other. How do you empower yourself to learn more, and then how do you really shorten that design cycle productivity? Really. Right, and there are so many tools, so mm-hmm. many different ways to solve. You mentioned Altium. I know mm-hmm. Siemens is taking a swing at it. There's a lot of companies right. out there trying to solve mm-hmm. the, you know, which again, why I came up with the ecosystem is to get the ecosystem, get those silos down, right? right. So we know what our corollary stakeholders are up to um, and, and we get it right the first time. And EDA tools are absolutely going to play a critical role because mm-hmm. we can be in the digital sandbox, but we can also communicate mm-hmm across that in some tools anyways you can communicate and um, actually record when you made that decision right and Mm -hmm. go back and oh yeah that's why I did that so um, it's not an easy thing and I was talking to someone recently about millimeter wave and signal Mm -hmm. integrity recently and that introduces a whole another level of sensitivity because the waves are so small and so it feels like every time we take a step up in technology, we hit some more of these pain points. Mm-hmm. Tim, let's talk about what you're noticing and Eric, what you're noticing, um, both from the industry side, the academic side, and from the EDA side, right? Let's look at this holistically. Mm-hmm. Where do you think EDA tools are going to go? We've mentioned a few players. Um where do you think EDA tools need to go to make mm. this better? Like, where are the bottlenecks? Where are the, where are we in areas where we're not yet where we need to be to make this work well? And no cheating, mm. no AI conversation in this. So, 
in the world as it is today? I'll take a stab at it. I would say I, in the future, I see all EDA vendors to be more collaborative. Instead of having a zero-sum game mindset mm -hmm. where we're all competing for the same customers, we should, I see that happening right now, actually, we'll, we'll work together. And instead of trying to split one pie, we're going to make two, we're going to make many pies. Right, that's the abundance mindset. We can help more people if we team up together and integrate our technology better, then the technology will grow faster and more people will be encouraged to simulate. And like the like the example Eric gave, people who are not simulating is because it's too expensive. Now if it's that's the friction point, that is the blocker, right? If we can bring down that blocker then we can achieve a world where people are using simulation to prevent these unexpected things happen in the manufacturing. And we can bring it back to everything going smoothly and life quality will be better. And I, I might be naive whenever I get on the podcast and say the world will be a better place, but I guess I always end up there. <laughs> <laughs> so you, what you're saying, Tim, is you're really working for world peace. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. essentially. <laughs> Is this a beauty pageant or a webcast? I can start dancing, but I don't want to see that. <laughs> well, it sounds like you got your stand-up comedy shtick down, so maybe we should just transition now. Eric, Eric will be, be the be the judge of that, huh? I can't wait to come to the, your next comedy performance. Susan would be jealous if she wasn't there, though, mm. so I'd have to drag her there. Um, you know, I, I want to add one other thing about where... Um, I think where where EDA tools are going, and um, I, you know, I think I, I I I kind of agree. I think what you're saying, Tim, is that your comp as an EDA vendor, your competition isn't the other EDA vendors. Mm -hmm. It's the the market space out there that doesn't simulate now, and so you you just want to grow that market uh, segment, and and that'll grow the market for everybody. Mm -hmm. I I completely agree. I think there's a lot of folks that aren't simulating that. That will be as speeds increase, your luck decreases, right. and you you have to be simulating. Um, I I see another problem that um, is not, and I don't know that it's the EDA vendors' problem necessarily, but uh, it's part of their uh, their their holistic approach. The whole reason you simulate and do a virtual prototype is because you want to be able to anticipate how this, if I were to build this system as I envision it, here's how it's going to behave. And I can tweak a knob in my virtual prototype and, and see here's how the real thing would behave. To do that, you know, we talked before about how important it is to have the, the models for the interconnects, hmm. the dielectric properties, conductor, all that stuff. But equally important, and maybe even more so, these days is the models for the devices themselves, mm -hmm. the transceivers. And I, you know, if you look at like a DDR4 or 5 system, the, the parameter for one term, like the input gate capacitance for one of the DRAM receivers, is such a sensitive term influencing the signal quality because it's a multi-drop system and the you don't you minimize the stubs but you still have the input capacitance of the of the receiver sitting on that line that acts to cause reflections mm -hmm. that the the quality of the simulation is only going to be as good as the quality of the model that you have for that device and my fear is if if memory vendors 
understand how important the model is they have in not where, whether someone's going to buy their product and the product's going to work, but how it's going to behave in a simulation. They mm. may be gaming the system and providing models that don't necessarily match their real product, but will look good in a simulation and cut mm. down on the input gate capacitors, for example. And when I, I've worked with a few vendors in, in helping them in their systems, and it's, it's so clear that if you tweak that one knob, you can make a system, a DDR4 or 5 system, uh, be uh, a beautiful looking eyes right. versus, oh crap, this isn't going to work. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And just by tweaking that one knob, and, and you're relying on that, that device vendor to give you an accurate model. And how mm. do you know it's an accurate model? And that's just one component. You got the transceivers on all the FPGAs out there and all the ASICs that are and these days every you know at at you know my buddy Dave Dunham over at Molex he says at 28 gigabits everything matters. Mm. And uh you cannot build a channel today at 20 gigabit where the eye is open. It's closed. The only way you open it is by the transceiver. It's what uh uh Don Tillian keeps saying is it's all about the kind of the software, the firmware in the mm. transceiver setting the equalizations and the IBIS and the, models. And the, the IBIS models, the mm. uh, AMI models. AMI models, yeah. It's 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 all of the details in the quality if you have right. if you have a bad model and you don't know it, your simulation may be fantastic. You say, mm. wow this is great, but you're using a model that's a crappy model that doesn't mm. match the mm. real device. And there, I think one of the big gaps is how does a user gain confidence in the quality of the model they're using from a vendor that is simulated or used as a model mm-hmm. in a particular simulation tool? Um, and that's a, a really tough problem. I think there are third parties out there that will do mm-hmm. some kind of measurement simulation comparison of active drivers and create IBIS models. But I think the the vendors of the ICs should mm-hmm. take more responsibility in providing validation of the models that they create. And just a spiced IBIS uh, uh, correlation isn't necessarily good enough. You got to get you know real measurement simulation correlation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big gap that I don't see being addressed enough out there. Mm-hmm. That's very true. That's very true, especially. Well, you mentioned ADS. ADS uh, Advanced Design System is a software where you can pull in all the channel information and put in, like we're mentioning, the IBIS models and AMI models. And a lot of times, really, you can get a good eye, but is that eye real when you when you measure yeah. it? That's a different question. And I don't think it's your fault. I mean, it's not about the 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 simulation tool. It's mm-hmm. about the vendor's model that right. they're running in the simulation mm-hmm. tool. Yeah. And who who's accountable for that? How right. do you how do you mm-hmm. increase the confidence you have in that vendor's model? Mm-hmm. And and so I think we should be collectively putting more pressure on the semiconductor vendors out there to prove to us, in, increase our confidence level that their models are accurate representation of the parts that we're getting. Hmm. That's definitely a, a big problem. And a lot of people have talked about it. Nobody's solved it exactly. But we've heard a lot of experts talk about, you know, a, a, a looking at data sheets with some level of cynicism, <laughs> like don't trust data sheets yeah. straight yeah. out. And, um, and I think that, 
I don't know the answer. You two would know more than I, but I remember talking to a, a large semiconductor manufacturer whom shall not be named. And I said, why is this this way? And he said, honestly, part of it is because our lawyers get involved. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, that's a, just mm, a sad yeah. answer, right? Mm, it's, yeah. a, mm. it's a protection of the corporation. Mm -hmm. So the, they're putting evil. minimums in, you know, some of that. And there's secret sauce. There's, yeah. And I'm just like, that's just a bad answer for the industry. Mm. Um, but I do know people, like you said, Eric, uh, I have a friend, Mark Harris, that's working on that right now. And he's creating a, a site. It's, it's not up yet, or I guess it's up yet, but it's not fully built out called the parts playground where mm -hmm. he's simulating real world data and providing that. I think it's open source. So I know there's other people that'll do that. Okay. So these are some of the things we need to fix in tools and everybody's coming at it different from a business standpoint. I, I'm like you, Tim, I, I can be a little Pollyanna, <laughs> you know, like just everybody play together and the world will be at peace. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, there's all these stakeholders with different agenda yeah. from a business standpoint. We just can't mm -hmm. all jump in and play nice together. It, it's not quite obviously that simple, but I do see movement in that direction. All Tim being one that we both know um, that is working with companies like Keyside or ANSYS or right. whatever and trying to work co cooperatively, right? So I think that is a good trend. All right, I'm going to let you guys go crazy. I just want to, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm just going to step away from the microphone and let you go <laughs> crazy. So th these are some of the EDA tools so that where they need to go, better communication, maybe class um, cross-platform integration, um, being aware of that we have actually have good models, and there's more we can unpack. But right now, all the talk is about AI and machine learning, mm -hmm. and I'm positive this is going to come to bear on all our lives very quickly. So where do you think EDAs could go or will go um, if we get AI involved, and it, will it help or hurt or do both? I volunteer, Eric. Okay, um, so I, uh, you know, I'm watching this field very closely because it has a big impact on, you know, our students and uh, the field as well. Um, and you know, it's like so many aspects of technology that they, it's a double-edged sword. Um, the good news is, boy, it can really increase the efficiency of a designer mm -hmm. um, that it, you can have a little you know AI on your shoulder that is the expert system that's helping guide you and direct you the danger is um, where that the, the the training input comes from mm -hmm. upon which the neural net is created and if it is based on information that is available on the internet or that is not parsed by an expert or a series of qualified maybe peer-reviewed experts mm -hmm. the danger is that um, it will the AI will give you bad advice and um, so I, I was at a conference with uh, my buddy Todd Hubing is one of the world's experts in in EMC and uh, he gave a talk about bad advice that you get on the internet mm -hmm. uh, and you know I have a similar 
a series of examples I pull out. He, he was talking about EMC. I have a similar one of SI and, and PI examples. And he had this long list of uh, people that post information on the internet. Many times um, they're posting it there in order to get clickbacks to their company and mm-hmm. they don't get a grade on whether it's correct or not. And there is so much out there that we have this 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 huge collection of myths and legends. And mm-hmm. if, if the internet is used as mm-hmm. the source of training materials, then we will get the myths and legends introduced and we'll end up with mediocre engineers mm-hmm. uh, as the AI. Uh, and it, if it is, if the input is parsed by uh, or curated by expert engineers and it is continually uh, evaluated and revised, then there's a chance that those uh, uh, AIs that are developed could be very useful in helping mm-hmm. the design process. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll offer one other concern I have. I interview um, students that go into college, and I am hearing more and more high school students, pretty sharp high school students, that are real familiar with machine learning and have developed, uh, uh, worked on machine learning algorithms and have developed training um, uh, systems and uh, and are enamored with this idea of an AI can do anything if you just mm. train it. And I'm hearing them tell me, why should I study physics? Why should I study electrical engineering? Because mm. I'll just train an AI to do it. I don't have to know that. And mm. my fear is maybe that's the case, but then you remove any sense of engineering judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we are when we create our own engineering engine, we are using basing that on our engineering intuition, our physics intuition, the root mm-hmm. cause, the fundamental right. principles. And if it is just on a training algorithm of inputs leading to outputs, my fear is we're gonna lose. It's gonna be like COVID, you know, to the to the tenth power, you know, Googleplex of COVID. We're <laughs> we're gonna lose generations of of engineers, mm-hmm. and we're gonna end up with uh, mediocre AI tools. So, mm-hmm. a blessing and a curse. Indeed, and I, I actually I do have the same worry. It's it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's just too much power for young engineers to have in their hands, right? And Eric always says, and an expert is the person who has made all the mistakes with an AI. Well, assume that they all get correct information, right? The engineer itself, he or herself, doesn't get to make the mistakes. It doesn't register in their engineering brain. So back to Eric's point, well, we create all these bunch of mediocre engineers that can always ask AI for answers, but it's always that rule of thumb that you pull out in thin air that would impress people, right? And if you can quickly do it on the spot and do a quick check, that that is not it's not gonna come from AI. Unless unless we're going crazy here, you get those crazy goggles, right? And then you can just pull it up with your hands. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's uh... all this is independent of of Skynet. Right. <laughs> and, well, and the Matrix. Yes. I should um, put a disclaimer mm-hmm. in here. All opinions of guest and host are, are <laughs> not the responsibility of the podcast yeah. host or the podcast <laughs> ecosystem or Keysight Technologies. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, Eric, you know, one last comment. Mm-hmm. Anybody that is interested in AI and is thinking about what it can do, there are the three movie series they have to watch. 
It's the Terminator series, The Matrix, and iRobot with uh, mm. Will Smith. Will Smith. Because mm. that was it's it it's the same title as Isaac Asimov's book, completely different track. But it really mm. talked about where you know if the three laws are obeyed, where does that lead an mm. AI to interpret what's best mm. for humans? Right. So it is very mm. scary. Three of my favorite movies, sci-fi movies, and also I wrote a term paper in college about Isaac Asimov and the robot's three laws, so I really liked wow. iRobot because wow. it ta- it it's it's about ethics and morals yeah. and judgment, yeah. right? It's these intangible sort of soft learning skills, these things that are distinctly human. So it's the human out of the loop is pretty scary stuff. I think there are great gains to be made, but with any technology, it can be used for good or evil, just like in the movies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, I wanted to say something on the back to add to what both you and Tim has said, but you specifically about AI uh, learning from the internet. Because I've been in marketing and I've worked mm-hmm. for large companies that have a digital marketing force, I've seen that happen where I was the the lone person saying don't put anything that's not true out there it's bad for the industry it's bad yeah. for your customers and they're like but there'd be a separate human being that got rewarded for how many clicks mm. regardless of where those clicks went or what the information was mm-hmm. and it you know content is king and so from a marketing point i standpoint i think we've sort of polluted the internet with Mm-hmm, bad mm-hmm. ideas to get those short-term clicks. And that would also concern me greatly. Luckily, there's a lot of Dr. Eric Bogatin and and Todd Hubing stuff out there too. So there's a lot of good And Dr. People's... Tim Wang Lee's. And Dr. Tim Wang Lee. Wow. Not enough these days, I have to say. <laughs> I have to generate so, more content. One last question for you both. Um, in light of how EDA tools are evolving, the the complexity, particularly of the signal integrity workflow. What is one piece of information? And I'm going to limit you to one, which is super not nice and cruel. But really, if there's one thing that you hear over and over and over again, saying, why do I keep giving this piece of advice over and over again? What would that one thing be that we can um, leave with our audience before we go into the live chat? Okay, uh, I'm going to paraphrase Tim here, Uh, so I'm going to steal some of his thunder. Um, So I'm going to say, always apply rule number nine, that is anticipate before you simulate or measure uh, so that you know what to expect. Um, And and the second is, the other thing that he said is, always ask yourself, when you have a result, ask yourself, so what? What does it mean? How is that going to influence any decisions that I make? And the you know the corollary to rule number nine about anticipate um, before you simulate is think of every consistency test you you always have to doubt yourself think of every consistency test you can do that will help you gain confidence in the uh, in in the result I don't know you can ever tell if you're right but the more tests you do that show your result is consistent uh, and and the tests are consistent with each other um, the more confidence that you'll have in that result. Good answer, Tim. I agree. 
<laughs> well, he I said. Just, I just That's like saying it. I agree with myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's time. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for this fun, enlightening, and interesting conversation. I trust it'll help everybody that is is watching. And Judy, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. And Tim, always good to see you again. Can't wait for that comedy show. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Eric. Thank you.